There are those who will say, well, you shouldn't worship on Sunday. You need to worship on Saturday. And if you worship on Sunday, there are some circles that will say, you take the mark of the beast or that dishonors the Lord or whatever it might be. We need to have a clear understanding of what the New Testament says. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Let no one judge you concerning Sabbaths. Romans chapter 15, verse 5, One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in their own mind. In other words, if you worship on Saturday, praise God. If you worship on Sunday, as we do, praise God. Welcome to Under the Fig Tree. Under the Fig Tree is a verse-by-verse study taught by Pastor Jeff Figs of Calvary Chapel of Greeley. We are currently studying through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Jeff. Now, we don't know when the rapture of the church is going to happen. We don't know the time of the coming of the Lord for us. No one knows the day or the hour, Jesus said very specifically. But he did say that you and I, in his desire, as we read the scriptures, is for us to be discerning in the times in which we're living in. And I believe that we can, and we're going to see this again as we go through the book of Daniel. It was the Pharisees that were rebuked by Jesus because they weren't discerning of the days in which they were living in. He said to them that you guys can discern the weather. You can tell when the storm is going to come or when... The day is going to be nice the next day by the sunset, but how is it that you don't discern the coming of the Son of Man? And so Paul says, the seasons and times, I have no need to write to you, as he is writing to the church at Thessalonica. And we can be discerning and wise, and the Lord desires for us to be, as we read the prophecies in the scripture, we read the newspapers, and we put it together, and we can come to the conclusion, and we will see very clearly when we go through the book of Daniel, that I believe that we are in the last days, and I believe that the Lord can come for us at any time in the rapture of the church. I don't know when he's going to come for us, but Jesus said, I come when you're least expected. So let me ask you a question this morning. Be honest. Do you believe that the Lord can come back today? I come when you least expect it. And perhaps you might be saying, oh, no way. I don't think so. Jesus is saying, be wise and faithful servant that is looking for the master's return. I don't know when he's going to come back. But I know that, as Paul would write, be looking for Jesus from heaven. He calls it the blessed hope there in the book of Titus. Be looking for the blessed hope, return of Jesus Christ. Always be looking, be watching, be waiting, be sober, be vigilant is the, the repeated message in the New Testament. And then John would write in his epistle, he who has this hope, that is the coming of the Lord when we will see him, purifies himself. What does he mean by that? It means as you and I, are being that wise and faithful servant. You see, you're being wise and watching for the Lord. You're being faithful and continuing to serve the Lord. Doesn't mean you're sticking your head in the sand. Doesn't mean you stop living or stop ministering. But you're being faithful. Occupy till I come is what Jesus said. But as you're doing that and you say, maybe today, just maybe, perhaps, that the one that I love And the one who died for me is going to come for me today. I'm going to hear the sound of the trumpet. It has a purifying effect on your heart, doesn't it? 
you're not going to be down hanging out at the bars or putting things before your eyes that you shouldn't be. And that's what John is saying, that he who has this hope purifies himself. So here Paul is saying, when this happens, the rapture of the church is going to happen in the twinkling of an eye, not the blink of an eye, but the twinkling of an eye, which is caused by light reflecting off your eyes. It's going to happen at the speed of light instantaneously. And so he concludes this chapter at the resurrection by, again, emphasizing verse 53. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal put, must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. He's, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. O death, verse 55, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? That's an Old Testament reference to Hosea chapter 13. And the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus is the final defeat for death. Death no longer has victory, no longer has a sting. It's as though Paul, as he's closing this discussion on the resurrection, he kind of is taunting death here. Oh, death, where is your, your you know, sting? Hades, where is your victory? As he quotes from the Old Testament, death in Hades has no more power over the believer in Christ because of what Jesus Christ has done in going to Calvary's cross. And he's alive because he came forth from the tomb. We're no longer, we as believers, under the penalty of sin and of the law. But now we have victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that should affect the way that we think and the way that we live because we're victorious and we have life in the promise of the resurrection. And so he gives this final exhortation here in this chapter. He says, Therefore, in verse 58, My beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's a promise for you and for me this morning. The glorious thing about what you do for the Lord, it is never, listen, it is never, never in vain. And I think that perhaps most of us, if not all of us that are here, that maybe we've labored in something. We put a lot of time into a project or in hard work into to something, and it fell apart. It collapsed. It didn't work out the way we expected it to. So I think that perhaps some of us have experienced that in one way or another in life. Maybe with a project you did. Maybe with a business you were involved in. Maybe in a relationship. Maybe even in ministry you can think that. In all that energy. In all that time. And all of a sudden down the tubes it goes. And it doesn't work out. And we get frustrated and we think, wow, that was just a waste of time and energy. But I want you to know something this morning. And this is a great encouragement to me and I hope it is to you as well. That the Lord says to us that your labor for the Lord is never, never in vain. You might think, well, I witnessed to them and they didn't believe. I've ministered to this group of people and and they haven't really received me well. I was involved in this ministry and it didn't work it out. Your labor for the Lord is never, 
in vain is what the scripture says, which means that anything that you do for the Lord is going to be rewarded by the Lord. The rewards that you do is according to the labor that you do, not for the results. He says you're going to be rewarded for the labor that you do. He's responsible for the results of my labor. So you just continue. Because you see, all of us can get discouraged as we're serving the Lord. I know I can as well. I think, Lord, I, I have so many shortcomings and and Lord, I certainly you can use somebody better. All those thoughts that, that all of us can have. And disappointments and all these things that go on. But it's not in vain what we do for the Lord and our faithfulness to serve Him. And we're to continue to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So that finishes this chapter, chapter 15. And now we're going to move into the last chapter of this epistle. And and he's going to give some last-minute instructions and exhortations. And we're going to find in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16 that Paul discusses a collection to be taken for the saints in Jerusalem. You see, Paul, he wants to go to Jerusalem. He wants to take a collection from the churches up north, the Gentile churches, as a gesture of goodwill. Because the believers in Jerusalem, they're going through some very difficult times at this time. And there is a real financial need for the church there in Jerusalem. The churches up north and the Gentile churches and the church in Jerusalem understand that the church started in Jerusalem, the day of Pentecost. And from there, it's spread out. And Paul's now on his missionary journeys and on his third missionary journey at this time. And the Gentile churches are growing and being established and stuff. But there was kind of a, a, a distance. There was... Um, this, this standoffish attitude that the Gentile churches had with the Jerusalem church. And perhaps Paul is thinking that if he brings this offering to the saints in Jerusalem who are in need, that's the primary reason, but perhaps some of the negative attitudes that were existing in the churches would be broken down. And that the Gentile churches up north would be saying to those Jewish believers in Jerusalem, hey, we're brothers, we care for you, we have a love for you, we're all part of the body of Christ, and we want to give to you, we want to help you. So we read in verse 1 of chapter 16, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so, must, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So Paul here, given these instructions to gather a special relief offering for the brethren there in Jerusalem. They had, again, experienced famine and difficulties, and persecution had been going on in Jerusalem. Ever since Saul in Acts chapter 8, was persecuting the Christians, that is, Paul the Apostle, before he was saved. And I think Paul had a special heart for the Christians there in Jerusalem because whenever he was there, he would realize that some of them were going through hardships because of his persecution before he was converted to Christianity. In chapter 8 of Acts, it says that Paul, Saul at that time, was causing havoc on the church, pulling people out of their homes and committing them to prison and even... Some of them were put to death. So he would see some of the widows there that no longer had a husband, children that no longer had parents, whatever it might be, and had a real heart. And so this meant a lot to him. And he wanted to, to help. And so they're going through famine. They're continuing to going through persecution. Some of the believers perhaps without jobs because if you were 
you know, in Judaism and you converted to Christianity, your family disowned you and you lost your job. And it was tough. So here the Corinthian Christians have been instructed by Paul about this collection. Again, remember Paul and the church at Corinth, they had communication with each other, and then also the churches of Galatia were given the same instructions. And as we look at this, as we read this, I think that we see that, that we get some good principles when it comes to giving that you and I will be benefited from looking at this very carefully. And I think, first of all, as we look at these first four verses, when it comes to giving, the first principle that we see here is that they were giving corporately. They were to give on the first day of the week, which again supports the fact that there is giving corporately. And so many churches, and most of the churches in Greeley, this morning as they gather on the first day of the week, there will be a collection that will be given corporately. And we give you the opportunity to just give freely and willingly with boxes, and so we don't have a a time where we take a collection, uh, but it is when you come and you gather together here on Wednesdays or Sundays that you're able to give freely. But I think that what it does is it shows us, first of all, that the Christians did meet on Sunday. And I mention that because there are those who will come along to you and to me and they will say, well, the Christians didn't meet on Sunday in early church and they didn't do that till Constantine became the emperor of Rome in 313 AD and then he declared Christianity to be the official religion of Rome and that's when the Christians started meeting on Sundays and it was a conspiracy and all of this. I think we see evidence that the Christians met on the first day of the week. This is one of those references. He says that, that you put your collection aside on the first day of the week. Why? Because that's when they met. Paul's being very practical. When you meet together on the first day of the week, when you have church, put the collection aside so that when I get there, there doesn't need to be a collection. We know from Acts chapter 20, it speaks about when Paul was teaching the brethren, it was on the first day of the week. And so I mention that because there are those who will say, well, you shouldn't worship on Sunday, you need to worship on Saturday. And if you worship on Sunday, there are some circles that will say, you take the mark of the beast or that dishonors the Lord or whatever it might be. We need to have a clear understanding what the New Testament says. Colossians chapter 2 verse 16, let no one judge you concerning Sabbaths. Romans chapter 15, verse 5, One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in their own mind. In other words, if you worship on Saturday, praise God. If you worship on Sunday, as we do, praise God. But to say that you can't worship corporately on a particular day, that is not biblical. And how ridiculous it is to extend that to the conclusion of you take the mark of the beast? Come on. So here they met on the first day of the week. It was the day that they chose to worship because it was the day that Jesus rose from the grave. So there's giving corporately. The second principle here is giving is personal as well. Paul says, let each of you give, lay something aside. So Paul doesn't leave anybody out. Really, when it comes to giving, no Christian is excused from this. We are to be good stewards of what God has given to us, no matter how little it might seem in economic terms. Now, I understand that we're in tough economic times. And you might be thinking, it's difficult for me to give, and how can I give? I have a hard time paying the bills. That's between you and the Lord. 
But I want to say that it was Jesus that commended a widow woman there in the Gospels at the temple in Jerusalem because she put in two small copper coins. That's all she could give. It amounted to about a penny. And Jesus took note of it and he commended her and said blessings to her. Jesus said something that a principle that is very important when it comes to her giving. And that is where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And if all I am is prioritizing and investing in the things of the world, and listen, I'm not saying that you shouldn't invest for retirement or invest for your college, you know, kids going to college and college funds and plan for your future. We're to be smart, good stewards of what God has given to us. Of course we are. And we're going to do those things. But if that's all you do, if that's really where your priority is, is I'm just going to invest in the things of the world, it's going to be indicative of where your heart is, and that is towards the world. But if I'm investing in the kingdom of God, and, and that's what I want to do, that's where my heart is. I prioritize you giving financially my time, my energy to, to things of the kingdom. It's indicative that truly I have a heart and love for the Lord. And that's, I'm excited about supporting and giving to the work of the Lord. So we are to give corporately. We are giving personally and then thirdly faithfully he says let each of you lay something aside as he may prosper in other words you're taking the initiative to put that money aside for the lord and i think that's an important principle because so oftentimes christians give only when they respond to emotional plea and some of those pleas are legitimate pleas and appeals for support but we don't always think about it do we and we don't always you know, pray about it. Should I be given to this ministry? What should I give? We're not always given cheerfully and freely. And so Paul says, I want you Corinthians to have your gifts already prepared. You've sought the Lord about it. You've stored up that which you are giving. You know, the church can be real good about having gimmicks and mind games and guilt trips that they play on people. Those kinds of pressures are built up in church services and certainly you see it on Christian TV or radio. You get people to open up their pocketbooks and give. One thing that I've noticed that there weren't professional fundraisers in the early church. Paul's saying, it's all ready to go when I get there. No thermometers. No big, you know carnivals and, and three-ring circus going on. Just give. And folks, that's the way I want you to give at Calvary Chapel. We don't talk about money much here, except when we go through it in Scripture. That the Lord desires for each one of us to give as He may prosper. But you give cheerfully, you give freely, and you give willingly. He goes on in verse 3, And, and when I come, whomever you approve by your letters... I, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem, but, it is, but if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So Paul wanted a representative from the church of Corinth to deliver the, the gift to Jerusalem. They could choose their own representative. Paul did this to be above reproach in all financial manners, but also that it's a personal you know, contact that the, the people, the Christians, are actually up north. The Gentile churches are having contact with the the church of Jerusalem in verse 5. And now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. 
And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. In verse 9, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So make sure in taking your offering, uh, I'll be by soon. I'll, I'll want to spend time with you, and, and then you can send me on my way. And there's going to be some representatives that will be with me, beside me, to Jerusalem as I go. Hope to spend the winter with you. But at the end of verse 7, take note of this. Notice that he says, if the Lord permits. And the reason that we should take note of that, that if, if Paul, things didn't work out, he knew that it was the Lord. Here are my plans, he says, if the Lord permits. Even though he had plans that he made, he knew that it was ultimately up to the Lord to determine whether those plans would be worked out. And it's something that I think that we as Christians need to to understand that we make plans, certainly we do. We map it out. We're going to stick with our plans. But sometimes we have to be flexible and let the Lord work. Let Him direct our paths. There's nothing wrong with making plans and having goals. But we should commit those things to the Lord and allow Him to change anything because He has the better way. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understandings. And in all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths, is Proverbs chapter 3. And then Proverbs 16 tells us that man's heart plans his way, but God directs his steps. So, hey, I make the plans, um, and so do you, but ultimately you've got to say, your will be done. And James talked about that in his epistle. He says, don't say tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, but rather say, if the Lord wills, tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. Because the Lord sometimes sees things that you and I don't see. That is, we plan, and he sees that he wants to do something else. And we're just being flexible to him and what he wants to do. And so here he talks about that, and then verse 10 he goes on, if, if Timothy comes, see that... He may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. So Timothy is coming. Make sure that you don't despise him. Make sure that that it may be in peace, that he doesn't come with you with fear. Now, why would Paul say that? Because the Corinthians was a tough crowd. And they were a church that even held out Paul at arm's length. They were ones that he says in 2 Corinthians, that the more that I love you guys, the less I am loved by you. They were always kind of challenging his apostolic authority. And so Timothy, being a disciple of Paul, he, he was no different. And so he make sure that he doesn't come with fear. Now, Timothy, we can talk a lot about him, but he was one that he was young, as we know. He was one that um, was uh, emotional because Paul says in Second Timothy chapter 1 that I remember your tears when I left you. In other words, he was crying when Paul left him. He was one that physically he was a little weak. Paul says, take some wine for your stomach. So here's Timothy, you know, he... He's got an upset tummy. He wept easily. He was timid. You know, he wasn't uh, the man's man coming in, and he's really going to, you guys better not mess with me kind of guy. But he was a great man of the faith and used of God mightily. And Paul loved Timothy. He says, he's my son. He's my son in the faith. 
And then verse 12, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. That is Apollos. Remember in chapter 1, when Paul was dealing with this whole issue of division, he said some say they're of Apollos, some say of Cephas, some say of Paul. So Apollos had been to Corinth, and he says Apollos will come when it's more convenient. He can't come at this time. Paul was just encouraging them, hey, you know what? He doesn't feel led to come at this time, but I'm sure that he will come again. You and I, at times, we desire to do something, but it may not work out. And there are times when we will do that in our lives. And so verse 13, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. And all that you do, let it be done with love. The final exhortations that I'll give to this church that we will look at next week. Wonderful exhortations that I know will be a blessing to us as we'll finish 1 Corinthians. Thank you for joining us on Under the Fig Tree. If you would like a copy of today's study, please call us and ask for the message with today's date. Our phone number is 970-330-1717. That number again, 970-330-1717. If you prefer, you can write us at 2602 West 27th Street, Greeley, Colorado, 80634. You can also visit us online at ccgreeley.com. Under the Fig Tree is brought to you by Calvary Chapel of Greeley. We invite you to join with us for our Sunday morning services at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. and our Wednesday evening service at 7 p.m. Please join with us next time as we continue to study the Bible together on Under the Fig Tree.